0: afternoon, uh, and uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I uh, If I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at the Trails, uh, and this is one of my favorite days uh, as well. I, I say that about a lot of days, but th- uh, this is really one of my favorite ones as well. I, was, uh, I FaceTimed my mom earlier today, and uh, I was like, I miss you, mom. I uh, love you. And uh, she's like, I miss you too. Uh, and so we had, a, we had a nice little FaceTime conversation earlier today. Uh, and, uh, and I just love it, this day where I can honor her for, for who she is as my mom and, and the way that she has so faithfully, just led our family. I mean, giving me life, literally, uh, nourishing that, uh, taking care of me all these years. Uh, And so uh, happy Mother's Day as well to you, whether you have a mom, uh, are a mom, married to a a woman who's become a mom, uh, I pray that today will be a really great day uh, of celebrating many of the women in our lives uh, who have made our lives a possibility by their generosity and selflessness, right, to nourish us and provide for us. And you know, it's only actually as I've gotten older and had my own kids that I've realized how much my mom did for me, right? Right? Yes and amen to everyone who has children. Uh, or, or you have nieces and nephews that are running around that you're like, man, they really do love them. Uh, I've I realized just how much she did for me, how much she loved me and cared for me. But back then I had no idea. Zero idea uh, what all that she sacrificed for me, but I mean, how could I? And yet over the years, I've watched my wonderful wife uh, carry and birth and nourish and provide and care for our sweet kids, and I've seen really up close how motherhood is a labor of love, and all the women said, amen, it is. Uh, and, and, And it truly is this gift that just keeps on giving, and so we want to take a moment also to just thank God for the gift of motherhood and to honor you as moms. I want to also take a moment, though, as well, to recognize that I know this is a difficult day for many of us. Those of you, like me, who can't be near your mom, or those of you who your mom has passed and you cannot be with her, uh, those of you who live great distances away, or or, or those of you who even today, um, you're struggling and walking through things like infer- infertility, or or maybe you've had your mom pass away this past year, and this is your first Mother's Day, so you're just flooded with the reminders of that. And so I I know that today is a difficult day, but it's also an exciting day. And so we we want it to be both of those things. And just wherever you're at and however you walked into the room today, just know that the Lord sees you and loves you and knows you uh, and knows what you're you're walking with. And so as we walk into his word, we're praying that he would provide for us in many different ways as we all kind of walk in uh, very different places today. Um, And so today, at this time, what we're doing is we're diving back into our study in the book of Exodus, ending uh, with chapter 19 last week, and then we're diving into chapter 20 today that Teresa just read for us in a sermon that uh, we are calling uh, 10 Rules for Life. And yes, I stole that from Jordan Peterson. He has 12 rules, and the Lord says there's 10, so Jordan's wrong. But before we dive in, I thought it was also interesting to note that since we last gathered together as a church, that everything has really hit the fan this week in the realm of motherhood. You know what I'm saying? Like everything that came down the line this week was SCOTUS and those release documents about Roe v. Wade and responsibility going back to the states and not, not to uh, the, the federal government to decide for themselves how they will govern all those things. And, and, and all this has been kind of living rent-free in our minds this last week. You know what I mean? It's been all over your social media feed, everywhere in in and around you. Uh, it's crazy and it's fascinating timing, if nothing else. And it demonstrates really the tumultuous waters that we are swimming in culturally, and that all that happened the week before Mother's Day. Isn't that fascinating? Just pause and think about that for a moment. How crazy that is. And so, uh, you know, everything that happens down there seems to impact us up here, and, and like you, I've seen lots of comments and arguments back and forth on social media this week, and I'm sure we'll continue to see those things for the next couple of months, if not for the rest of our lives, um, but, but in regards to where we find ourselves in Exodus 20, like why I'm talking about this, is all of it has made me wonder this past week, how do we get the laws that we have? How do we get the laws that we have? It, why do we have laws? If they are primarily for human flourishing, they're for our good, who gets to decide what is human flourishing and who gets to decide what is the good that we're all working towards in our laws? Or or to put it differently, whose idea of the good life gets to determine what laws shape our society? Do we make laws based off of whatever seems right in our own eyes, in our own cultural moment? Or is there some sort of a truth, a divine foundational bedrock of a truth that we can test all of our laws by to see if they are right and true and good? And if they really do lead to human flourishing or some false idea that we might have about human flourishing. And and as I was studying this this past week, I came across a reference to an article from CNN from about a decade ago where a book was being released by some authors and they were trying to drum up interest in their book. And so they decided to crowdsource 10 non-commandments from anyone that would send in uh, our our generation's most cherished values. Now, this was written by a humanist and a secular atheist. So uh, the prize for this uh, was that they would win $10,000 if you sent in whatever our 10 non-commandments would be, right? So if we got to make commandments, what would they be? And so I want to share them with you uh, as evidence kind of of our world. uh, If we were to make up the rules and live by, what would they be? And although this list is about a decade old, what you'll see is it's spot on. Like it could be prophetic for everything that we're walking through this week. So I thought I'd give us this list and just see um, what this uh, predominantly atheistic and humanistic crowd came up with would be the best 10 non-commandments. So here they are. You ready? beautiful. I knew you'd be. I know you'd be excited. All right, here we go. Right, here's the best of the 10 non-commandments. Number one, be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has a right to have control of their body. Now, the government of Canada doesn't agree, but that's fine. Number five, God, that was good. That was good. That was good. Number five, uh, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there's no one right way to live. Seems strange. Get through eight of these, and you finally get to number nine. There's no right way, though. It's strange. Number 10, leave the world a better place than you find it. One pastor, uh, he commented on these non-commandments and said, "They, they sound about right. It sounds about right. Like if you were to take a poll, crowdsource these things at the Forks later on this afternoon, this, this is about right. It, not in terms of, of how many people um, think about their moral obligations with respect to the Ten Commandments, but how they, they themselves would define it if given the option. And this captures kind of the moral code of a lot of people that we rub shoulders with. And, and I would hope, perhaps naively, that after uh, a few moments of reflection, we could see how a lot of these non-commandments are, uh, in fact, um, full of stunning contradictions. So we just mentioned one, like number nine, that's crazy. But not only that, but they say you don't need God to be a good person or to have any of these commandments, and yet they give a summary of the golden rule, which comes from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish others would do, you do also for them. That's the law and the prophets. So what do you do with that? But even more so, these non-commandments are logically indefensible. And they're presumably called non-commandments because commandments sounds very, like, commandment-ish. You know what I mean? Like you must do this. And, well, I don't. Not really, though. But really, you must. Um, and, and he noted this, this one pastor. He noted how we all live paradoxically in our age, don't we? We live paradoxically. Like people will say, "I'm a moral relativist. Morality is what you perceive for yourself." But then they will rebuke you like the strictest fundamentalist when you disagree with the position they hold, and you're like, "What? That, what is the game we're playing here?" Is the game everything is open, or is the game just you want to hate me? Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where we're going, right? It's like, I don't know if you've seen some of this on, uh, on social media this week, right? But it's like, if you don't agree with my assessment on what is right and wrong, then other, then other people who are, uh, you know, a little bit more um, open-minded on things will just call you names very quickly. Uh, and they're not good ones. Uh, they're very bad ones. Uh, they're just yelling derogatory words with those they disagree with. And it's a crazy world we live in. You know, I was thinking about that, about how all of this leaves us just yearning that God would actually give us rules to live by. Wouldn't that make things just so much simpler? If God just gave us, I don't know, 10 rules for life that he would give us, commands that would actually lead to human flourishing as he so intended it, and that's exactly what God's commands were meant to be for the people in the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, as we will walk through them, one of the things that is just so stunningly beautiful about them is that if people lived this way, if they obeyed these commands, the world that we live in wouldn't be so upside down. Like, we wouldn't have to have locks on our doors. Bill C4 would never have existed. Uh, and, And a whole host of other laws that claim to be for human flourishing, but are really for human languishing. Human deterioration. I mean, even just think about that. Over the last two years, how much human deterioration have we seen with laws and mandates that are meant for human flourishing but don't provide what they promise? You know what I mean? And this is, this is what we all do. This is not just them and us. We all do this naturally. I'm convinced by a thorough examination of all that list of non-commandments and what we see in our culture around us by studying world history that if left to our own, we would naturally make laws that do not lead to human flourishing. I mean, if we get to be the judge, if I get to be the judge, if I get to decide what is right and what is wrong, we'll always have to, we will always be those who, who make laws on things, but we will always naturally choose the wrong, every single one of us. Like, if, if we get to be the judge, if you get to be the judge, if we get to judge things, we will always be wrong, and things will go very poorly. And every week in the Bible, we see that. We see every week that there are flawed people who do not judge things properly apart from the Spirit at work in their lives helping them judge things rightly. And all that goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 to 3, the very beginning of the Bible. The first three chapters of the Bible. There's this longing to be like God, deciding good and evil for ourselves. and Not letting God be the one to decide that, but us ourselves. This longing to be like him. In examining God's laws, how how quick are we to judge God's laws as repressive and see God as evil, cruel, and withholding, forgiving us his laws? It's like we're hardwired now because of the fall to not see his commandments as good and perfect and beautiful, and so we reject them. Wanting to be like God, we make our own assessments, our own commands, we strive to live up to them, and then we judge others based on their ability to uphold what our judgments are on things. But it all traces back to the garden, that first time, that first rejection of God's laws. And because of the consequences of that first sin, we are all now born into this world as broken and busted up people, broken and busted up in every single possible way. And, and all we want to do is to live by the standard of whatever is right in our own eyes. We are like the book of judges. And, I, and think about all the arguments you've seen this past week on social media. And think about how many of them began with, well, I think X, Y, Z. And the response is, well, I think X, Y, Z. Well, you're a bigot. Okay, okay. All right, that's fine. And it stems all the way back, right? We like to make judgments on what we think is best. And if we were like God, getting to decide what is good and evil for ourselves and others, if we get to make the rules for life, if we get to see uh, all things that we want to become true come true, we, we see that this produces not stability but incredibly shaky ground, incredibly shaky ground. And these whole conversations, whether it's the current thing, or the next thing, or the thing after that, they will all boil down to value judgments. Because the way that I think that we ought to do things, the way you think we ought to do things, are different. And all of that makes us yearn to know what is the best way forward. What are the best laws, the ones that really lead to human flourishing? And so far in the book of Exodus, we have followed Israel the last couple of months, and we've, been, we've seen that they were set free from slavery in Egypt and brought out of that land by the strong arm of the only true and living God to be his people. And when he brought them out, he didn't do so that they they might be able to turn around and just ask one another, like, hey, what do you think should be the laws of this new nation? What what should we do? He didn't just set them free and say, figure it out. Good luck to you, buddy. Right? In the same way that you wouldn't just like give a five-year-old a loaded pistol and say, Hope it goes well. Right? Like, bad idea. Right? In the same way, same way. When God brought them out, he he didn't Asked them to just figure it out for themselves what are the best laws to govern their nation, that would have been disastrous. No, God himself spoke to them and gave them the foundation of their laws, these 10 commandments. And then through the better part of a year at Mount Sinai, God began to elucidate them practically how that law is to be teased out into civil and ceremonial and moral laws for his people so the people didn't have to pause and think for themselves, what should I do or what seems best for me? Rather, the righteous, holy God who created all things speaks and gives Laws that will dictate their brand new identity as his people, living under his laws, headed towards his land. He is the one who has liberated them and given them these laws, the best laws, and they will impact all of their lives as his people their political, social, and domestic lives. Every part of their lives will fall under the purview of these laws. So, whereas we only saw one law in the Garden of Eden, remember, do not eat from this one tree. Now we will see some 613 of them that will, that's a lot, that will govern God's peoples. But they're not arbitrary or pointless, right? Like some of the mandates that we've had in the last couple of years. No, they're meant for a human flourishing, and they tell Israel what God demands of them. And by their obedience, God promises Israel will remain under the covenant blessings of God as they obey his voice and keep his covenant. They will flourish in every possible way, uh, personally, as families, and also as a nation. And the bedrock of the laws of God, the very foundation that all the laws are built on come first. And we typically call them the Ten Commandments. Really, they're ten words, or if you want to get all fancy in historical, uh, historic Christianity, the Decalogue. Uh, but, but they are the ten rules for life. So that if Israel would live in God's covenantal blessings, if they would really flourish as his people, then they would obey these commands. And through these commands, we see that God makes demands on Israel's lives what they think about, also the motivations of their hearts, and then the words they speak, and then the deeds they do with their hands. All of that is in the Ten Commandments. It might not have sounded at first blush, at first reading, that all of those things are in there, but I'm going to fight to show you that they are. And some of the laws that will then follow in the next couple of chapters in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, we'll see that God calls Israel to an all-out obedience, to a radical obedience to his laws. And so what my aim today is to do to see how these 10 commandments are not simply 10 easy to accomplish rules for God's people, rather they are the holy standards of the Holy One of Israel. And as Israel succeeds in living lives in conformity to God's commands, they will experience his blessing. But as they turn away from them, they will experience covenantal discipline so that they who are corrected are then turned back to God with all of their hearts. And when they do, he will relent of his discipline and instead bless them. And that is a brief history of the entire Old Testament, is it not? This continued walking and dis- God disciplines them, and they come back. And then God, dis- like, they keep, and they run away, disciplines them, and they come back. And over and over and over again. That's the whole Old Testament. If you're, like, brand new to the Bible, that's, like, three-fourths of the Bible right there. People are faithless. God disciplines them. They come back. That's, that's it. And then we get to Jesus, and he's perfect. So uh, there you go. Um, but before we dive into the commands, I wanted to remind us, as we talked about last week, that um, obedience, sorry, it's the, there we go. Obedience to these commands of God did not make Israel into God's people. Obedience to these commands didn't make them into God's people. Rather, they demonstrated that they were God's people. That's a, that is a really important big E on the Christian eye chart and on the Jewish eye chart. It's, it's huge. Their obedience put on display their identity as God's chosen people. It's to demonstrate that. We talked last week about how God didn't give these Ten Commandments to Israel back when they're in Egypt and say, all right, boys, measure up. And if you measure up, then I'll liberate you. Is that what God did? No way, Jose. God, God sent his grace in first and then liberates them and now says, all right, now here's, here's the rules by which now you are then to live as my people. He doesn't say, if you measure up and keep these laws and obey them perfectly, then I will redeem you. No, no, no. That's not how the God of the Bible works. God does not give a laundry list of good deeds and tell you, if you just measure up, if you can be good enough and do all these things, then I will be kind to you. No way. Rather, his grace comes first. He reveals himself. He gives faith, rescues his people, but he doesn't free his people from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and self so they might come up with laws for themselves and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Rather, he tells them after he's redeemed them what the family rules are for them, what the family rules of the kingdom are. Thus, they are to become who they are as God's people as they listen to the voice of God, obey it, and keep it. And that's key. So they don't become the people of God by their obedience, but because they are the people of God, uh, they, they obey the words of God. So much like, it's Mother's Day, much like mothers, parents, when you welcome that little baby into your family and they were yours, remember that day? Man, that was a scary day, that first one, good night. I couldn't sleep that night. I was like, they're gonna die, I just know it. They're gonna quit breathing, so I have to stay up and just watch them. If I watch them, they will not die. <laughs> oh, I don't do that anymore. But early on, that's what I thought. I'm like, i got to watch them, make sure. And then as they get older, you begin to lay down the ground rules for what does it mean to be in your family, right? What are some of those covenantal uh, disciplines and covenantal blessings of belonging to the Boswell family? Uh, that their identity is not on the table as they obey or disobey. No, they're, they're, they're my kid. They are my child based on their ability to, not on the ability to measure up, but simply because they are mine. I, I didn't. <laughs> Samantha, birth them, uh, or, or maybe for you, maybe you also welcome them into your, into your home by adoption. They are yours, and there are rules that need to be lived by in your home, and that's what Israel is walking through. They have been saved out of darkness by the strong arm of the Lord, and now they need to become who they are. And as they do so, they're demonstrating their identity as the people of God as they listen and obey God's voice. And so today, what we're going to see is the foundation of those commands, those 10 commandments. And if we remember from last week of chapter 19, it's a terrifying and an amazing one, right? And if you walk away last week, and you're like, man, that chapter is actually super terrifying. Uh, I, I was talking to Samantha on the way home and I was like, what are your thoughts on today? She's like, the Lord is holy and we are not. I was like... That's that's the aim. He is holy, we are not. What we saw is that as his people came, his chosen people, God says, I'm going to come and meet with you. And they go and prepare themselves in Exodus chapter 19 to meet with God on the third day. And he gives requirements of what they need to do to prepare themselves to meet with God. Remember the cleaning, the abstaining from intimacy, the makeshift boundary markers around the mountain. Let's say pass over the boundary markers and they die And we saw how frightening and terrifying the preparation was, but then the day itself, the mountain is trembling under the holiness of God. And the whole mountain is on fire, but not being consumed. I don't understand that. Uh, That seems crazy. Uh, And yet this is what they're experiencing. And then there's these blowing trumpets that get louder and louder and louder and louder. It's incredibly terrifying. And then God called out of that mountain to have Moses and Aaron climb up. but told Israel to remain at the bottom, not to try to climb it, lest he break out against them and they die. It's a sober moment. But, but we remember in all that, Exodus 19, 9, that all this is happening because God wanted Israel to hear his voice when he speaks to Moses. That they may believe that Moses is God's mediator before them for forever. So this whole scene has been set. God begins to reveal himself. He continues to do so. We're about to see the story of how God calls his people to live in response to his kindness and rescuing and redeeming them. So, God has a pretty captive audience at the moment. And Israel's at the bottom of the mountain, listening to God's voice, and they see Moses as their mediator. And then we get to Gen, uh, Exodus chapter 20, where they will indeed hear with their own ears the voice of God, giving them the Ten Commandments. And then we'll see those who trembled in chapter 19 are even more overcome with fear by the end of chapter 20. And after hearing the terrifying and holy voice of God, they will ask to never, ever, 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 ever hear the voice of God ever again, lest they die. They are terrified. It's too much for them. So uh, let's pray, and then uh, and then we will dive in. So Father, as we come into your word, we pray that, that we would be receptive to it. God, we know that we are not Israel standing before a trembling and blazing Mount Sinai today, but, but we do know that, that we are coming to your inspired and inerrant word, and that we're hearing you speak through this sufficient and infallible word today. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, make this text profitable in our hearts and lives as we hear it. Pray that you would use your word to purify us as your people, continue to sanctify us, and may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. I and mean, we need your help in that. Uh, so help us, we pray. Amen. All right, so in today's sermon, uh, we aren't going to be walking through every jot and tittle of the Ten Commandments and elucidating all of them into every nook and cranny of our lives as Christians, though that might be a great sermon idea. So five years from now, remind me, we'll come back. We'll circle back, but uh, we, we, for today, uh, I want us to see how these commands, I want us to understand the structure of them and how the Ten Commandments actually work together. I was talking to Nino right before the gathering, and I said, the funny thing about the Ten Commandments is that people might know the, the idea of the Ten Commandments, but if I were to like, call you up on the spot and be like, all ten, go, you're like, oh man, I don't know. I know. I don't know what they are. I know that uh, I, I I can get like eight of them, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and so and so we might know them, but we might not have really understood and studied them as a people. And and these these commandments they're so foundational for uh, the mosaic covenant. Uh, that, that it's really important for us to understand them and then to see how they get picked up in the New Testament. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to study the, the structure, understand it, how it works together, and see how pervasive all these laws are for Israel. But then after that, I want us to understand uh, how they are the bedrock of the Mosaic Covenant, the laws that would govern this new nation. And then what does that tell us about the character and nature of God and what he demands of our people? And then at the end of our sermon, uh, we are going to see uh, how uh, these uh, 10 and which ones specifically are reinforced in the New Testament. Right, as we are now in the covenant that Jesus has inaugurated and under which we now live and what we Christians ought to do with these commandments. So I'm gonna talk about this fast all the way through the sermon. Usually I don't talk this fast, but I have a lot to, I have a lot to cover. And I was telling Samantha today this could be a three-hour sermon or it could be a 45-minute one. So I am gonna try to go fast. Ready? All right, thank you. You're with me. I don't know who that was, but I'm glad you're here. All right, all right, here we go. So two quick notes. First one uh, is this, that these commands... Uh, come in a particular context in redemptive history, the Mosaic Covenant. We talk about this all the time, but the Bible uh, was not written to you right now. You are not Israel. I know you You know that, but you're not. You're not Israel. You're not standing, like we're not, on, there's no mountain, it's not on fire. You're not Israel. So, So, but... But, so we need to understand first uh, the, the historic context, the redemptive context, how does this fit into the grand storyline of the Bible? Specifically, how do these laws come to a redeemed people who's Israel? So the main emphasis is on what Israel ought to do and how they ought to live in response to the commands that God had for them. These are the expectations God has for them to know how they ought to live as his people and how they will enjoy his covenantal blessings, specifically land blessings. But it's way more pervasive than that as we read Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30, where we see there's these covenantal blessings under the mosaic covenant for Israel that as they obey his voice and keep his covenant God will bless them and when they don't he will discipline them so firstly these are the 10 rules for Israel they might experience uh, the covenantal blessings not the covenantal discipline for God upon them Secondly, uh, I want us to know how uh, throughout church history, commentators have noted that there are two tables of the law within the Ten Commandments. The first table of the law pertains to Israel's duty to God, and that's commands one to four. Um, and uh, they're part of that first table. And then the second table uh, is Israel's duty to their neighbor, chapters five to ten. So it's God was their duty to God, and then what is their duty to their neighbor? So God, and then neighbor so it's all-encompassing and so uh they they work together then explaining how israel's duty to god gets lived out in everyday lives it's not divorced from everyday lives it's it's god shows who who they meant they're meant to be and then how does this impact their everyday lives and we're going to see that continue to get fleshed out in the weeks ahead and so um We should know that there are different orders and structures to the Ten Commandments, but the one that we're going to be focusing in on our study is actually a uh, structure that's been put together by a guy named Alec Mateer. That doesn't look like a Mateer, but that's how you say it. So Alec Mateer, Uh so he notes there's a chiastic structure of the Ten Commandments. That might be a new word for your Mother's Day conversation post our sermon. Uh, so we're uh, at small group this, this week. A great phrase you can have in your back pocket is, oh, I quite enjoyed the chiastic structure of the Ten Commandments. Didn't you? That would be, uh, you'll sound brilliant. You might not have any idea what you're talking about. So a chiastic structure, what does that mean? Well, simply, it explains the pattern a B C C B A. So it's just it's, a chiasm is just a structure. Uh, there's poems that you might have grown up learning. You know, like you went to the zoo. He ate a banana. I don't, nothing rhymes with banana, the zoo, I don't know. Uh, like that, that's a, that's a, I'm terrible on the fly of coming up, to the land. I have no idea. But it's a, that, you get it, you get it, you're smart, you're smart people. Um, and so Mateer recognized that there's a chiastic structure actually in these two tables of the law. So first, uh, we see that uh, there's this duty to God that Israel has, and we see it played out. Commandments one and two in their thoughts, commandment three in their words, commandment four in their deeds, and then the second table of the law, Uh, Their duty to others, which is Commandments 6 to 8. Their words, Commandment 9. And their thoughts, Commandment 10. So thoughts, words, deeds, deeds, words, thoughts. And so what we're going to be doing in our study for today of these 10 commandments is to separate them by category. Uh, So we're going to examine what God demanded of Israel in their thought life first. So we're going to look at the first two commands and then the very last one, the bookends of all of this. And then we're going to see what God demands of them in their words, how they use their words appropriately in the worship of God in relation to others. And then their deeds, how he demands that they practically worship him in the rhythm of their resting and how their faith is meant to be lived out out in their duty to one another as Israelites. So we do thoughts, words deeds See, that makes an arrow that's where we're going forward motion everybody all right so the first one we're going to focus on is the uh thoughts of uh thoughts and worship of god's people now i'm going to spend the most of our time here so if we're starting to go and you're like man you're spending a long time here bro you still got two other categories i know i know i gotcha all right here we go so we can see especially as we examine the first two commandments What are those? Well, we have no other gods before Yahweh and not make for themselves any carved images or bow down to any object uh, or serve any object. And so immediately what we see is the first two commands in Israel's duty to God are about their worship. Isn't that fascinating? They are about their worship. And so this is really significant because God begins the 10 commandments with going after the worship of Israel. He goes after their hearts. He doesn't begin with their deeds. He begins right here, right in their hearts. So, so this list begins that God in this, this is, uh, by demonstrating that God is not simply going after external obedience. Now, God does require external obedience. Yes and amen. We're going to see that in their words and deeds. But right here at the very beginning of the 10 words, we see the first two of them are more more and more um, going after your hearts, and that all of this actually is more pervasive than just looking at external behavior, what you must do. They begin with the heart and they begin with the worship of God's people. Thus, we see firstly that God is going after the hearts of Israel. Right, what Israel loves, what Israel thinks about, what Israel meditates upon, and who they worship. He begins by making demands upon their affection. He goes after the hearts of his people. Namely, he demands that he be the only one that their hearts go after, and then says how their hearts are to go after him. And I think this is important to note, because we might be tempted to believe the Ten Commandments are simply a list of laws. Right? Anybody? Bueller? Yes. Ten Commandments, right? Maybe they're just simply a list of laws. We might blow through them in our Bible reading for the day without pausing and considering exactly what these commands entail. And and yet, and yet they begin with the exclusivity of the affections and the worship of God's people, going after what they love. And it might sound a bit strange at first blush. I mean, the word love isn't in the text. Like you don't read through and you say, the word love isn't there. Right? So in fact, Israel won't hear the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength until the book of Deuteronomy, right? But what we see is clear here in Exodus 20 is that God is going after the hearts of their people, what they esteem and what they cherish. And it's by their disobedience, by their obedience and what they worship that they will demonstrate who they love and who they worship. John Calvin, in talking about this, he noted that the first and second command forces Israel to examine four things, who they praise, who they count on, who they turn to in times of trouble, and who they thank when things go well. And in answering those questions, one sees who their God is. I read that in my study this week, and I was like, dang, Calvin, straight to the heart, bro. So Israel's God is to be the only true and living God. He's the only true and living God. He demands they praise no one else. They count on no one else That he be the only one they turn to in times of trouble and the only one they thank when he provides. Thus, God makes demands on the affections and the worship of his people in these first two commandments. And that's the hallmark of their obedience, that they worship him alone. Thus, if Israel wants to image God rightly or become who they are as God's chosen people, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, that it begins and it ends with worship. Who are they worshiping? Who are they depending on? And so the Ten Commandments, they are uh, bookends. They have these bookends that intentionally demonstrate that God demands the desires of his people come into conformity with who he is and how they ought to live out their faith. Not only that, but they show us, um, they show us that God doesn't simply desire external obedience, but internal desire and affections. He demands the the internal desires of his people be for him alone. You are like God demands affections? How can he? Like, I just say, Love Salisbury House. And you're like, Heck no, man. This place is terrible. I can't, can't even make you love, right? Or you ever try to introduce two people and you're like, You guys would be great together. And you do it and you're like, And they're like, No. And you're like, Dang it. I can't, can't I do that. And God here demands, Worship me. Love me. Have your affections for me. I, I, okay. I. How, how do I change that? You can't. This actually is the work of God. He demands these things on his people, but only God can provide what he has demanded them to do. And that is a hallmark of, of, of the faith of the Old Testament. That God alone is the one who demands these things, but then gives what he demands so, so that they can do what he's told them to do. So it so begins here with worship. He, God begins and ends with this desire, the realm of desire inside the deep places of the hearts of his people. He starts here with the heart. He demands their worship, their affections, their thoughts be solely for him. So let's see that. I want you to see that. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. So this is the first commandment. It begins with the whole notion of worship. That since he is the God who rescued and redeemed them out of Egypt and demonstrated that Egypt's gods, these worthless demons who pretend to have power and authority and demand everything from the Egyptians are ultimately impotent. They are powerless. We've talked a lot about that in the chapters uh, beforehand, how God performed all of these signs to systematically dismantle and prove that the gods of the Egyptians were demons and worthless idols in comparison to him. That he is the only true and living god no other god therefore should be thanked and served by god's people that would be ridiculous he's just demonstrated through these huge signs i alone am god for them to then get out of there and be like yay let's go worship this rock like are you crazy like what, how many times do i have to prove myself to you right so first thing uh is, is that if they already experienced his covenantal blessings they're to worship him alone and isn't it interesting that in verse 2 of, of uh, chapter 20, God reminds the people before he gives them the Ten Commandments of who he is and what he's done, before he gives them those, he says, remember who, remember who I am, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Thus we have God saying, do you remember, remember who I am? In response to who I am, have no other gods. Not that there are any other gods, but there's lots of gods they could try to run to and worship that are actually demons that cannot save them. So as Israel will be tempted in the days ahead, uh, days ahead to turn and to worship the false gods in the land of Canaan, when they might be tempted to adopt the customs and values of the people among whom they settle, maybe they're going to look for some fresh insights, right? Develop a religion compounded of what others have found to be the most helpful or practical things, or maybe, maybe other people that they, they meet, they'll, they'll find something a little bit more relevant to their new settled existence in the land of Canaan. But God is saying here, no, firstly and foremostly, when you're tempted to do this, give the worship that belongs to God and God alone. Do not do it. And we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament how the relationship that God has with Israel is meant to be like a marriage relationship. So, So here in the first commandment, we see basically God looking at them and saying, you are to have no other lovers. None other for they belong to God. And any other God means they're cheating. They're committing spiritual adultery in this covenant with God. Thus they are in their thoughts and worship not to give value and worth and esteem and worship and adoration to anyone else other than Yahweh. Living out their new identity as his chosen people means they will worship none other than him. But more than that, it also means that they ought not want to. They ought not want to. Why would they, why would they want to give affection, worth, or value to a worthless demon? When they have the only true and living God that has rescued and ransomed them out of slavery. That would be foolishness. So not only are they to have no other gods, but they are commanded in commandment number two, to worship God as he demands that they do. So we read this. We read that they are to not make for themselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is, un, that is uh, in the heavens above or in the earth beneath, that is under the water in the heaven. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So picking back up on that marriage analogy, right, so I as a husband, I am jealous for the affections of my wife, right? I don't want her to go after any other man. There is a total exclusivity in marriage over affections, and it is a right and a good and a godly thing for a spouse to be jealous for the affections of their spouse, and in a much more substantial and greater way, God demands the affections and worship of his people to be exclusively for him as he has prescribed. If they want the covenant blessings, they must have the covenant faithfulness or else they will walk into covenant discipline as his people. So as one pastor notes, the first commandment, though it does not mention love, is concerned with our loving loyalty to the Lord. The second, with its reference to his jealousy, raises the topic of his love to us. For jealousy is part of the essence of true love. And the Lord, loves, the Lord so loves us that he cannot bear it when our desires and our loyalties go elsewhere. Thus, the second uh, commandment explains that there is a way that we can worship the true and living God in a right way and in a false way. Israel, as we will see, will offer one day strange fire, offerings in wrong ways, and and they will have wrong practices in worship that do not please the Lord. See, not every way of worshiping God is acceptable before God. So, for example, we see that there is an absolute prohibition of the use of visible representations or some kind of an aid or supplement in our worship. God is not to be represented by human contrivance, like a tool or a trinket or an idol, nor is he to be identified with any aspect of the visible created order. So Israel, therefore, is not to have any carved images for the purposes of worshiping that image in the place of God. Expressly forbidden in this is to have some sort of a a little talisman that they look at by, by means by which they touch and focus their attention on as they worship the Lord. And that's important because the pagan nations around them all worship just like that. That's what all of them do. So a hallmark of Israel is they will not be like this. This is expressly forbidden by God to have these trinkets and these holy items. And we'll see this come up in Israel's future, right? They're, gonna, they're about to make a golden calf and the Lord literally is yelling at them from the mat- top of the mountain right now with Moses there, they're all at the bottom. Do not make a carved image for yourself. And like, like next week, they're gonna say, hey, what if we just make this image and worship it? That sounds like a great idea. And Aaron, the priest, is going, yeah, let's do it, man. And just Moses is like, come on, man. What are you, do- what are you doing? So those are the first commandments given in regards to Israel's duty to God uh, is, is to not make any of these things worship him and him alone. And th- that's kind of the first bookend of how they ought to live as those people. And if we turn our gaze to the end of that bookend, so then how they respond to one another, uh, the commandment there is found is in the realm of desire, and it's the uh, one of coveting something that happens in the heart, the affections, and the minds, right? See, in the other commandments, there are these external things that are forbidden by God. There's words and deeds, but here we see the thoughts of the individual come into purview. They are commanded not to covet their neighbor's house, wife, servants, or possessions. Again, how would someone be found guilty of this? It's happening deep in here. It's in there. How do you how do, you, how do you see that? Well, you have to see it. That, that's what you have to do. But it's interesting that God doesn't just care about external obedience, He cares about what's going on in here. Now, don't get me wrong, He also cares uh, about external things. But, but first and foremost, He wants you to know He cares about internal things. If Israel would experience God's blessing, they must do what God commands. Uh, but God also cares about the internal worship, thoughts, desires, longings, and heart of His people. Right? We read in James chapter 1. Uh, verses 14 and 15, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. He's commenting on, on what we see exactly here. So I, I've belabored this first category a little bit more <clears throat> than I will the next two because I want us to see that God really cares about the internal, internal and external obedience. He makes demands on both. And as we will see, these commands are all pervasive, touching every part of the lives of the newly freed Israelites. And that's the category of the commandments, the realm of desire and our duty to God, and then how it fleshes itself out in, in God forbidding coveting. Now let's move on. The second category uh, that we see is words. And we begin by examining covenant number three, and this is what it says. Uh, covenant number three says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this command is a pretty expansive one as well, and it requires, as the Westminster Confession explains, that the name of God, his title, his attributes, his ordinances, the word, Bible, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, all works, whatever else there is, uh, <clears throat> wherever God makes himself known, uh, that all of that should be holy that's a great word, holy and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. So by a holy profession and by an answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. That's answer 112 of the Westminster. It goes on to say in answer 13 that this would include even misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word or any part of it to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, I don't actually know what that means. I don't know what a vain jangling is, answer 113, uh, or maintaining of false doctrines. All this to say that this command goes a whole lot further than simply saying God's name in inappropriate ways. Like it means more than Israel just being able to not say, O-M-Y, O oh my Yahweh, you get it? See what I, see what I did there? It might include that for an Israelite, but it's much more pervasive than that, right? For someone to take his name and to speak about him wrongly in ways that he's not revealed himself within the bounds of Scripture. Or even contradicting the very words of Scripture because someone has progressed beyond them. Because really, I mean, these are just books from a silly, ancient, messy book. So So those things are much more of a serious offense. See, knowing God and, and then using his precious names as a means by which to lie to someone is also in view here as well. Right, so, for example, if someone were to take an oath in the name of God but have no intention to do what they were going to do, then that would also be breaking this command. But it's much more than that. One man explains it's the profession of the mouth in true adoration. All that to say that one's duty toward God in this command is to speak rightly of who he is and what he has done and what he has commanded. That's the third commandment, focusing on the Israelites' duty specifically towards God. But now let's look at the ninth one. How, how, does, that, how does that flesh itself out in the words of the Israelites towards one another? So God demands that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So just as Israel should not bear false witness against God, so their faith should lead them also to do the same with not bearing false witness against their neighbors. There is included in this commandment both a private and a public disposition. We might firstly think of a courtroom scene, right? They think the Israelite, they're standing before one of the men that Moses has set up to judge over Israel. Or maybe they're even standing up before Moses himself pleading a very difficult case. And they take the sand and what do they do? They ought to speak rightly on days like that. Not to speak or bear false witness, but to speak the truth. That is their duty as God's people. That is, by the way, why we have that thing where you put your hand on the Bible or somewhere else and like do you say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? This is where it comes from. Uh, actually, all the way back here to this command. So litigiously, this is really important in a society to have someone say that they are going to speak with truth, the whole truth, and not just part of it. And only the truth against their neighbor. But this command also includes the lives that the Israelites lead. They must be careful in speaking small lies, even little ones, in ways that bear a true witness of someone in a conversation. They must be really careful of character assassination and innuendo. They are God's redeemed people, so they ought to speak the truth because they have a truth-speaking God who demands it. And this most assuredly would have contained any kind of social media that the Israelites would have had back in the day. <clears throat> any text messages they sent one another, any coffees uh, that they shot the breeze while waiting to receive all the laws of God that year in Sinai. So, so they must be, as God's people, those who speak in a way that they speak the truth. They are to bear true testimonies about God and people and refrain from gossiping falsehoods. For in these ways, Israel sins with their tongues, their mouths, which praise God ought to be fountains of living water, right, contending for the truth not letting people remain in error and speaking that truth in love for them and for God and for the truth. And they're trying to persuade people into godliness with how they use their mouths. So with their mouths and with their words, Israel has a duty to speak rightly about God, uh, to God and about God and to their neighbors and about their neighbor. Now, just a quick word on uh, that word neighbor, like who is Israel's neighbor, it makes us Really wish that there would be some kind of a parable that we might have uh, in the New Testament that might help us. But let's, let's just focus Old Testament, all right? So Old Testament, who is my who is my neighbor? Well, we see a couple of things. We see, firstly, they are a close friend, Exodus 33:11, Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. Secondly, a member of your community, Proverbs 6:29. Someone who's just an acquaintance, 11:12. Someone literally next door, Deuteronomy 23:24. Some other person somewhere else that you might come in contact with somehow. Deuteronomy 4:42 and Judges 7:13. So when Jesus gave his famous response in that, he's not just like making stuff up out of thin air. He's like, uh, if you read, uh, you ever, you read this book, it's pretty clear who your neighbor is, right? So, so the commandment surely in all of these things has in its purview, and it requires us an integrity towards anyone who comes within our orbit. So Israel is to worship God according to their words. But then there is that last quarter category. So our thoughts, our affections, our words, now our deeds. In this portion it takes up commandments four to eight, which is the main focal point of the text. For it will be as Israel obeys these commands that they will experience the covenantal blessings of God. So it begins with worship as God makes demands on their affections, bleeds into words, but the heartbeat of how they will have this is found actually in their deeds as a people. For the inner life of someone is almost impossible to see, right? How do you, how do you see the internal life? There's no way. We can only see it in what comes out of our mouths and what we do with our hands. So practically, what are they to do? So let's see how this section starts in Israel's duty uh, specifically towards God found in commandment number four. So we read this. It says... um, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall do no work, nor your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or a sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And we've talked about the Sabbath a couple of times, so I'm not going to belabor it too much. But I want to begin this discussion just with the recognition that in the ancient world there is nothing like this command. No other nation had a command like this to intentionally harm yourselves by not working one day a week and instead to use that day as a reminder of who God is and how he created the world and how he is the one who ultimately provides for his people. This is foreign. And and, and notice as well, it's not just for landowners not that fascinating? It's not just for landowners. This command even goes down to the servants and the animals that belong to them. This was a complete halt of production and forward movement, a weekly reminder that God's provision is what sustained his people. It was not by their own white-knuckled work that they were seeing God's blessing on things. Now, now they have to work a lot. They have a lot of animals. Do so animals require a lot of work? Yes, they do. There's a lot of work there. But their blessing wasn't coming as a result of their works. It was coming as God was bringing that to them. And quite honestly, this command kind of seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Think about like our modern world, a day of just no work at all, no forward motion. I would feel like a slob or something. All right, it would have been really easy to not do in their future if it were not a direct command of God for his people. But in this moment, while they're in the wilderness wandering, it's one of the easiest things to do, right? Because God gives them bread from heaven six days a week, but not on the seventh day. So it's like they didn't even have a choice. God's like, all right, 40 years, you have no choice. You're going to Sabbath. Uh, and beat that rhythm kind of into them. That way, as they are getting into the land, they will continue these things that God calls them to Notice as well that the command goes back to how Israel is called to follow the footsteps of God. This command is grounded by God and what we read of in Genesis 1 and 2. And the invitation that God is offering to them is to enter into rest. Is rest. A gracious command for them. But We aren't told exactly what is required and what not required in every jot and tittle of the command like this. For, for example, we know that, that God on the seventh day of, of a creation, that he rested from his creative work, right? But he certainly didn't rest from his sustaining work. If he did, everything that he just made would just turn to dust. Gravity wouldn't exist, all the animals would just float away into space. Right? So, so it's not that he didn't do any work at all, but, but his creative work certainly did stop the creative disposition of his heart and creating and forming and filling. That work ended. And these Israelites are commanded to follow a similar pattern one day a week. So while they might have animals that need to be tended on that day, or, or maybe they will get into peril or help, or, or maybe a barn gate flies open, they'll have to run out there and close it, or, or, or collect their sheep and bring them back to the fold if they run off. And if there's some kind of extenuating circumstance They're allowed to do that, but their creative work was called to cease for this day as they just relied on the Lord. Not only that, but isn't it interesting that priests couldn't follow this? None of the priests of Israel could just say, all right, on Sabbath, I'm taking off. Good luck with all your sacrifices, everybody. No, they actually had to work all Sabbath. And so this command will take some fleshing out in future laws, but the foundation of it is right here. And then commands six to eight, we begin to see the deeds that they are called in relation to their neighbors, namely that they should not murder, for man is made in God's image and God is the giver of life, so don't murder fellow image bearers, nor should they commit adultery, As we have talked about, marriage has been uniquely given by God as a means by which to reveal, to put on display the relationship of Yahweh and Israel. And so just as they are commanded not to worship any other gods and to worship God only, uh, in the same way the Israelites' marriages are meant to put on display the covenantal faithfulness of God. They are to be a covenantally faithful people. These Jewish men are to have, therefore, any other affections for any other women. They are to be one women men. And they are to not defile their marriage beds or the covenants that they took. For in doing so, they would dishonor their wives and their covenant and speak negatively about who God is. So they're not to murder, commit adultery, but also they're not to steal. As we've talked about last week, everything belongs to God and he is the provider of Israel. So stealing is a rejection of Yahweh as their provider and demonstrates they're not content with what God has given to them. So much so that it leads them to take from others and to steal it so that they can be theirs. And so Israel is given two tables of the law, and they are meant to demonstrate their responsibilities towards God in their thoughts, words, and deeds, and also their responsibilities towards others in their thoughts, words, and deeds. And as we see, you will see many of these laws in the next couple of weeks, many more things that Israel is commanded to do, but in all of those laws will come in the Mosaic Covenant. These these 10, though, are the foundational ones that the whole deck of cards are built on, laying out who they ought to be as God's people so they might walk in the covenant blessing of God. But if you've been keeping a tally, I know you have, walking through the text very carefully, you'll notice I have left one commandment out. One commandment we haven't talked about yet. I saved it for the very end of our discussion, not simply because it's Mother's Day, and this one command uh, refers to the expectations of the relationship between kids and their parents, but also because it's the link between these two tables of the law. It's the link, and it's the only commandment with a blessing attached to it, and you got it. It's the command to honor your father and your mother. And that their days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, before you elbow your kids to make sure they're paying attention, before you do that, we're going to remember that this promise was made to Israel. This promise is made to Israel. It's under the Mosaic Covenant, and it is picked up in the New Testament, so save your elbow. We're coming back. Get ready. Get ready. But it's interesting to note that in this list of the Ten Commandments, that commandment number four and five are both written in the positive form. Do you notice that when we were reading through? It's like you're to not do this, not do this, not do this, not do this. Do this. And do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. They're in the, so these are in the positive form. So the Sabbath one is ordering your life in imitation to what God has done. As he rests, you're to rest. And this fifth command of honoring one's parents explains that Israel will experience long lives in the land that God is going to give them as they're faithful to honor their father and their mother. So honoring parents is the key then to their social stability and security in the land. And honoring leads to wholeness and happiness and stability and blessing for God's people. And it's interesting because the microcosm of the nuclear family is also meant to be a little word picture of God's relationship with Israel. See, right? So God is their father. They are his son. And everything will go well for them if they honor and listen to the voice of God and keep his commandments. And we can understand that on a smaller level of being with our own kids. Like like a kid is doing something they ought, to, they ought not to do that's going to hurt themselves. They're, they're trying to make a really terrible decision. Out of love, we step in and let them know that this will not go well for them. Sometimes we have to physically grab them by their shirts and pull them out of a situation. Lest they do something you can't go back from. You know what I mean? You're like, get over here. And they're like, they look at you and they're like, you don't love me. And you're like, no, I do, actually. I just saved your life. You just don't know it, right? <laughs> And so, so sometimes they, they don't know that we're saving their lives, and we are. Likewise, as Israel follows God's instructions, they will have life as all it is meant to be. All that is meant to be. So it's really beautiful that the first commandment moves that moves from Israel's duty towards God, towards one another, the first place that it finds itself is in family relationships before it concerns itself with how you live in the world around you. See that? First thing, what do you do? First place your faith is to be seen is in the family, in the family. I think it's interesting because uh, there in our homes is where we really are who we really are, right? Like you can show up here and you can like pretend to be somebody. People you live with know you. They They know you. They saw that fight. They hear those words. They hear that tone in your voice. They see those deeds. They know you. So the first place our faith is actually, if we have these affections that bleed over, the first place it bleeds over is in our homes. Godliness demonstrates as though they're, they're, itself there first. It's where our faith is clearly seen. And, and remember the scene as well. God's people are standing at the foot of the mountain. It's on fire. It's not burning up. The mountain is trembling. God's people are trembling. They're hearing God's own voice, and, and their kids are standing there with them. They're seeing their parents trembling. They're hearing the voice of God. They're trembling themselves. And one of the commands that comes from the holy mouth of God has to do with them and how they are to honor their parents. That'd be kind of cool. You ever thought about that, being one of the kids there, and you're like, oh, wait, this one's for me. This one's for you, buddy. And, And notice as well that God doesn't just say obey the dad. Obey your father and your mother. It's the responsibility, therefore, of a parent to ensure that their children honor them. It's the duty of the child to honor their parents. And so if you want to have a fruitful life, Israel, if you want things to go well for you, if you want to enjoy the land that God's bringing you to, uh, honor your parents. And so those are the 10 rules for life. Covenantal blessing that God gives to his people. These are the pervasive statements that will take many more laws to elucidate, and God will do that over the better part of the next year, but that's kind of the opening scene. God is holy. He saved them. He cares about their hearts. He wants their hearts to bleed out into uh, their words and into their deeds. And as we see, the last couple of verses of this section, uh, we see uh, how Israel responds, and this is what they say. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes and lightning, the sound of trumpet, and the mountain smoking, people were afraid and trembled, and they said, far off, and Moses said, and said to Moses, they say, hey, you, you speak to us. We'll listen, we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of God, the holiness of God, leads you into yearning to listen and obey him. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was, which is kind of a, it's a scary statement, the thick darkness that goes Moses. And throughout all the redemptive history, these laws, they will shape the history of Israel, and they will have seasons of covenant faithfulness and seasons of discipline and high points and low points, and, And every single one of the heroes in the Bible are marked by faithlessness to uphold this Mosaic covenant. Thus, needing all the sacrifices that God is going to prescribe for their sinfulness requires death. And Israel is going to find themselves having received this gracious and beautiful law, these wonderful commandments, these ten rules to live by, and yet it's these commandments that will prove impossible to fully obey. And yet these are the direct commands of God for his people under the Mosaic covenants, how they must live out their identity as God's people And so when Jesus, God the Son, comes and lays humanity alongside of his divinity and steps into time, isn't it interesting that he doesn't come to abolish the law or prophets but to fulfill them? He says in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 19, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? Also in the Gospels, we read one day when a rich young ruler, a rich young man, he comes up to Jesus. Do you remember he looks at Jesus and he says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit internal life? That conversation found in Mark chapter 10. And what does Jesus say to him? What does he say? This is what he says. You know the commandments. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus looks at him. What must I do to inherit life? You know the commandments. And then Jesus starts listing off the second table of the law, commandment five to nine. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Thus, when Jesus kind of gives the Coles notes of what we must do to inherit eternal life, he starts quoting the 10 commandments. And if we know anything about the story, as one pastor notes, you'll notice how ingenious Jesus is. The one commandment that he doesn't mention is commandment number 10, you shall not covet because homeboy was a coveter. Deep in his heart. So he, he notices, okay, you got all of them but the 10th one. Dang. All right, I'm out. Right? He just, and he takes off. I mean, he, he can say, I've kept all of them, but he mentions that second table, except coveting. What's your attitude towards money? How's your heart when it comes to coveting? Nailed it. And so when we get to the New Testament, we see that the commandments aren't just important for Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. But they continue in importance. Not only that, but Jesus elucidates the commands even further and more poignantly, doesn't he? He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Those commandments don't lessen when we get to Jesus in the gospel, nor do they lessen when we get to the letters of the New Testament. Paul, for example, Romans 13, 8, 9, explains that living in obedience to God as Christians, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we must become who we are, living lives in obedience to God. 1 Timothy 1, 8, Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he starts listing the second table of the law. Watch. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, violation of the fifth, of the fifth commandment. For murderers, violation of the sixth. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and there's many value, uh, violations of the seventh commandment. Enslavers, those who steal, violation of the eighth. Liars and perjurers, which is a violation of the ninth. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of, God, of the blessed God, with the I have been entrusted. So, what we see in the New Testament actually is that these commands that God gave to His people are upheld, and these laws are meant by design to drive us to our knees, as they show us that we are all sinful, broken, busted-up people, so that this may lead us to the good news of our salvation. Because this is what we celebrate as Christians, that the law of God is good and right and perfect. And we are all commanded to, every single one of us, whether you're in this room and you're a Christian or not a Christian, God demands all humans, all times, all places, all over the world to, we are commanded, demanded by God to follow his commandments. But you know the problem with that is? We can't. (laughs) I talked about earlier, how do you make yourself love God? Good luck. How do you make yourself not covet? Good luck. We can't. See, because our thoughts, words, and deeds are not in conformity to God's commands. That's what the Bible explains, is that all of us deserve to be cut off from the land, to suffer the righteous wrath of God against our many sins now, and then to spend all of eternity facing God's righteous judgment for all of eternity And friends, this is why Jesus came, laying humanity alongside of his divinity and stepping in a time to live a perfect life in obedience to all of those commands, every single one of them, to live the perfect life of obedience to those commands that we ought to have lived. For Jesus worshiped God the Father perfectly and rightly, as God prescribed, and though tempted by Satan to bow down and worship of him, he succeeded in not doing so where we all have fallen. Jesus never spoke falsehood nor misrepresented God in anything he said or did. As far as the Sabbath, he celebrated the Sabbath perfectly, and he honored his parents. And he never committed murder, not even hating his betrayers. Rather, he prayed for them. And he never committed adultery, but rather was faithful to purify his bride, the church, by giving himself wholly to her salvation and by washing her in the water of the word, beautifying us. And he never stole. Rather, his whole life was marked by extravagant generosity, even laying his own life down as a ransom for many. And he never bore a false witness. He always spoke rightly of the Father, speaking the truth in love as he called out false teachers, called them names, but it was all truthful. And all who loved the truth listened to him and never coveted anything. And he was content in all that the Father had provided for him. And then he, the only one to ever perfectly uphold all the commands of God as the perfect Israel and the perfect Son, he who knew no sin, became sin, standing condemned for our commandment breaking. And he, the true and better spotless lamb of God, suffered the consequences of our many sins so that through his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection, we might be offered forgiveness if we would but come, repent, and turn away from our false goods and gods and and trust in Jesus by faith as the only mediator between us and God. And if we would profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, that he's God in the flesh, and that he came to live the perfect life that God the Father requires of us, and then he stood condemned in our place, suffering the consequences that we ought to bear, and that he died and he rose from the dead, all that he might be able to forgive us, that is now what God requires of us. Isn't that good to know? He's not looking at you saying, are you measuring up to all these things? He's looking at you and saying, where are you at with Jesus? And friends, this is what's on the table for you. If when you, you heard those lists of demands of God and you felt yourself guilty before God, which you ought to have, you can come and be declared innocent before God of all of your sins, but it's not by your rule keeping, it's by placing your faith and trust that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you deserve to die. So what is stopping you from today coming to Jesus and letting him forgive you of your many sins? He's not saying measure up. He's not saying do better. He's not saying worship me rightly and then come to me. No, he's saying, hey, messy kid, come to me. I'll clean you up. Don't let anything stop you from coming to him and receiving forgiveness of sins. It's available for you right now. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act. He's he's not giving you laws and seeing how you measure up before he will forgive you. No, he's beckoning you to see all these laws, seeing that you don't measure up and to trust in Jesus, who has stood faithful where you have failed, and he's offering you forgiveness if you would just come and believe on him today. So will you? Come to Jesus, don't wait another day. He's ready and willing to forgive you. Even now in your heart, acknowledge your own sin before him and believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. You will be saved from facing the judgment of God against your sins. Come today. He's ready and willing to forgive you if you just come. And all that's a good reminder, isn't it, Christian? Of how you are saved and also forgiven by God. That we, we are Those who have been saved by works, they're just not ours. Huh. Isn't that good? Take this opportunity, even in your own heart, to thank Jesus for being faithful in your place. When you hear, when when you feel and hear God the Spirit convicting you of sin, just remember Jesus. Jesus is faithful in your place. Repent of your sin, turn, trust, and remind, remind yourself turn, trust in Him again. Remember that the gospel is for you. So take this opportunity, even in your own heart, to thank Him for being faithful in your place and then standing condemned in your place that you might become the righteousness of God. And we see this whole exchange happen between God and Israel as Christians. And aren't we kind of reminded uh, of how many commands there are in the New Testament that we must also do? There's, there's things God demands of us. We don't have the ability in our own strength to do any of them, but God the Spirit has been given us to indwell us and empower us that we may actually do what God demands that we be able to do. It's kind of like if you're looking at like a couple of like big, big barometers, you have like what God demands of you, your inability to do it, <laughs> Jesus' righteousness in your place, and now God the Father looks at you by your faith in Jesus as if you've did everything that he's ever demanded you to do. And God the Spirit now empowers you to do that which you once could not do. That is an important part of us becoming who we are as Christians, living out our faith in everyday context. We're saved by grace and through faith alone, but it's not a faith that remains alone. No, we ought to have our thoughts, words, and deeds impacted by our faith in Jesus because as, it, as, our, as our faith comes out through our words and through our deeds, isn't that where our faith is seen? Some of you have faith but have no deeds. Where's your faith? It's nowhere. So in wrapping up as Christians, then what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Well, firstly, we believe in the gospel for ourselves. They, they reflect the righteous requirement of God. But one glaring difference is actually is the fourth commandment, the one to Sabbath. Uh, so, so keeping the Sabbath for the Jews, we have seen, is important in the Mosaic Covenant. But Sabbath keeping for the Christian is expounded upon in Hebrews chapter 4. And we see in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are told to enter into the Sabbath rest of God by believing upon Jesus trusting in Jesus' finished works on our behalf. That is how we actually enter into the rest of God. So Sabbath is a kind of type that is fulfilled in Jesus. Also, we see argumentation in Romans chapter 14. We see a que- question about esteeming certain days. Do you remember this? Some people esteem these days. Some people esteem these days. Paul, what do we do? He could have checkmated the whole thing by saying, you know the fourth commandment? Worship on the Sabbath, bro. Does he do that? No. Isn't that shocking? Instead he says, each one, each person uh, esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then he just keeps moving on in his argument. So while the principle maybe of having a Sabbath kind of day might be a good rhythm for us to have in our lives, like the Puritans of old, they had a mart day of the soul where they would give uh, all of that day to no regular work, but instead devoted an entire day to communing with God and with others and coming under God's word as much as possible. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad rhythm, uh, but, but I know many of you, uh, many of you do that on Sundays, right? Giving your day to commune with God and others, but, but others of you might have to work on a Sunday morning. Or, or evenings, but Thursdays are your day off. You try to devote some of that day, or, or maybe you devote every day from 5 to 8 a.m., or maybe you see your whole life as a constant reminder of resting in the finished work of Jesus. And so all of your days are spent as reminders in the gospel, communing with God and others. So whatever, whatever convictions you have around those, praise God. But our ultimate obedience to this first commandment, is isn't or in this fourth commandment, isn't what our schedules look like, but where our ultimate hope in life and in death is found. Is it found in Jesus? All that to say, and wrapping up this introductory sermon, the 10 rules to live by, let us do so by noting the kindness of God that he didn't make his people grope around in the darkness unaware of what pleases him. And he didn't say, just crowdsource whatever you think is the best ideas. No, instead, God, the author and creator of all things, says, here is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to live. This is how life goes best. This is a good idea of the good life. Follow these things. And whenever they they just did something wrong, God isn't just like zap them. Instead, he gives them what he expects of them. Makes it abundantly clear. And his laws, as we talked about, went after their affections, went after their words, went after their deeds. And when they failed to do what they ought, he then would give them commands for sacrifices that they might have a substitute to bear the judgment of God against their faithlessness, thus creating a picture of what would happen when Jesus would come as our true and better lamb, priest, mediator, son, and Israel. So today, rest in the gospel. God is offering you rest from striving. So if you've been trying to please God on your own, that you might please him by excessive rule-keeping, he's beckoning you. Come to him and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Don't trust in your rule-keeping. You can't do it. You're not meant to bear that load. Not adding anything to what Jesus has done by your own works, but simply coming and trusting and believing all that he's done. And that, my friends, is the good gospel for us, especially a good gospel for weary moms. Weary moms. And moms, those of you who do such a wonderful job of nourishing your families, both physically and spiritually, and then give your time to stir up one another and provoke one another to love and good works, I want to say thank you. I know, I know that for many of you with little babies, the nights are long, and the days are long, and the nights aren't as restful as they once were, not as restful. But know that your work is a holy labor of love. As we shared earlier today on Instagram, that Charles Spurgeon, he was right when he wrote, you are as much serving God and looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear and minding the house and making your household a church of God as you would be if you had been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts. That's good. Know that as well in your persistent love for the Lord and trust in Jesus and daily repentance of sin and belief in the gospel and teaching your kids to do the same, that you are impacting this generation and future generations of godly men and women that will be sent out like arrows in the hand of God into all of the nations to plant the worship of God there. And so today we honor you. So if you're a kid today, at some point, rise up and call your mom blessed. Call her blessed. And and when you see her pointing your family towards Jesus and calling you to find your rest in him as she does. Listen to her. Imitate her. Honor her. Let's pray.